0: Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to go to verse 8. Mark chapter 1, verse 1 through 8. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you this morning. We are in desperate need of your spirit to move. So often we come to the word with dead hearts, with overwhelmed minds, with uh, anxious spirits. And so, Father, we need you. We need you this morning uh, to open our eyes, to open our hearts, uh, to satisfy our souls with your word. And so I pray that you do that. Father, use me today to do that, to uplift your word, to uplift your name, to uplift your glory, to uplift your gospel as the only hope that we have. And so, Father, after today, I pray that we cling more tightly to Jesus, more tightly to the gospel, more tightly to who you are. And it is in your name I pray. Amen. So our story begins. Mark begins. I hope you're excited. I am. And so I think the similarity here... So the way that it starts is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a pretty awesome start. Let's go ahead and tell you, this is the greatest news you've ever heard. And I think the similarity here between Genesis 1 and Mark 1 is no coincidence. So we see in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God. And now we see here in Mark 1, the beginning of the gospel of the Son of God. And so in Genesis 1, we see a God who intentionally creates a world intricately organizes it, and then steps into it to walk and be with His creation. And in the same way, we see in Mark 1 that God has not stopped being involved with the world. In fact, He's stepping into it again, and this time as one of us. But we know that even before Mark 1, God had not stopped working and moving in the world from the beginning. He constantly made provision after provision, showed grace after grace, displayed His patience time and time again, constantly restoring, faithfully leading to repentance, always being faithful to send a messenger to lead His people out of bondage, captivity, slavery, their own sin. And all of this is under the backdrop of Genesis 3, where we see both a fall and a promise. God has promised to redeem His people. So in Mark 1, we not only see the presentation of the life of Jesus, the beginning of the life of Jesus, but it's also the climax of the overarching themes of all the Old Testament, where we see longing, waiting, lamenting, but hope. Deep hope. Hope not because... God's people, somehow, during this time, clean up their act. Because they never have and never do. But because God Himself is faithful to His people. God Himself is faithful. And this faithfulness and this longing for a Savior are traveling toward each other and are about to collide as this story begins. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God is keeping his promise to send a redeemer. And in the wake of this redemption, he is faithful to do what he has done again and again, and send a messenger to prepare the hearts of his people for repentance and renewal. And so this is what we find in verse 2 and 3, as Mark cites this Old Testament prophecy. Now it's interesting to note If you remember what James said or mentioned last week, or two weeks ago, uh, that the book of Mark was actually written to Roman Gentiles. Okay? So Old Testament quotes and references are sparse throughout the book. However, he did choose to put an Old Testament reference here at the beginning. Now, the quote itself, even though it says the prophet Isaiah, is actually more of a collage or a mixture of quotes from Exodus and Malachi, with the last part, last half of the verse, or the passage, being from Isaiah. So even though Mark's audience is mostly Roman, his Old Testament edition here seems to be an overview or kind of a way for Mark to catch up the Roman readers on the story. So they're entering in in the middle here. They They likely know who Jesus is. They've heard of this Jesus dude. Most of them are probably going to be Christians. And so they're entering in this middle. And he says, this is what you need to know. This is the sum of the Old Testament. This is how God has been working and moving in his people. This is how God has been faithful. And the way he catches the Romans up and us up is simple yet profound. God promised to send a messenger to show us the Lord. That's it. God promised to send a messenger to show us the Lord. And so the Roman readers and us can, today can feel this excitement. Is Mark about to tell us who this messenger is? Who is this messenger? That longing and that waiting is still there, even in these verses. To Mark, this is not just any messenger or prophet, like Jeremiah or Isaiah. Both were mighty tools of God, but they were not Israel's deliverance. Mark chooses Old Testament passages equating... John, or the messenger, with Elijah. Now, despite popular assumption, Elijah was not thought to point to the Messiah, but he was thought to point to God Himself, to the coming of the Lord Himself. And so, this messenger was not just the herald of the Messiah, but he was pointing to the fact of who the Messiah really was God Himself. So effectively, what Mark was communicating in just these two verses was that all the Old Testament was pointing to God sending a messenger who would then point to the coming of the Lord and that that promise is now being fulfilled in the life, in the ministry of who we know now as John the Baptist and the Jesus Christ. So this is like Mark's stamp. Yes, Jesus is God. And this further points to the fact that the Jews totally missed who the Messiah would be. They were looking for some spectacular man or earthly king. But they didn't dream high enough. Because their Messiah was going to be God himself becoming a man. And so we start at the beginning of this story. This is the greatest story ever told. The greatest love than any love story you've ever read or or watched on TV. With the best hero than any heroic novel. It's more mysterious and awe-inspiring than any thriller or mystery you could ever watch. This is the story of a long-awaited king. A long-awaited savior. A long-awaited messiah who, spoiler alert, is going to restore all things. Right all wrongs rule over the most grand kingdom that ever existed, save all kinds of people, lead His people into an eternity of everlasting joy. This is the beginning of that story. And so we need to sit and consider and be in awe that we are now beginning this story over again. This is exciting. The excitement, the expectancy is here. The curtain is about to open. The musical overture has begun. And so we should be filled with excitement that we're about to hear again how much God loves us. How much God wants us, pursued us. But if we're completely honest, we often come to the gospel story. We often talk about Jesus' life. We often listen to story, these stories again and again for the thousandth time, it seems. We sit under similar sermons as these. We know the ending. We've heard the tales. And so we talk about the gospel and we hear the gospel with no real affection stirred. With no real excitement in our hearts. No real desire to hear the same old story over and over and over again. And it seems like maybe this story has run dry. Or maybe this story stopped working for me. Or maybe I have not felt in so long what other people say they feel when they talk about Jesus. The love, the joy, the peace. Or maybe I haven't had the victory over my sin that is supposed to happen. And so on, and so on, and so on. We're overwhelmed by life. And I'm praying that this be the day that you heed God's messenger. Not that I'm anything close to John the Baptist. Still working up to eating locusts. Gotta be honest. But you can know that God has you here, reading this passage, listening to this story. And it's so that you can trust and believe in the gospel today. You can trust His promises are true. You can trust that He wants you to be a part of this story. That He wants you to be a part of this kingdom. He wants to remind you that He is still faithful. His promises still stand. He wants to remind you that Jesus is your promised one. The beginning. This is the beginning of the sweet, sweet gospel. And it displays for all to see that the God who is faithful to keep his promises to Israel is the same God with you today. The exact same God. And so I'm praying that this be a season in life where your affections are stirred. Especially as you walk through Mark as a church. Your, that your heart will be a ripe place to learn and know more deeply your Savior Because this is just the beginning of the gospel. Just the beginning. There's much, much more. But our story continues. Look in verse 4. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So anyone reading this story right now in America, this is where we are, if you didn't know, Far away from that culture, should probably ask the question, What is with this dude? Okay? This dude apparently suddenly appears out of the wilderness, yelling about repentance, baptizing people, eating locusts. That's disgusting. Right? Drinking honey, which you can kind of get behind, but doesn't make up for everything else. The dude is weird. Now, we know other things about John because of the other Gospels. The miraculous fact of his conception, the joy and excitement he could already have about Jesus, even in the womb. The way he challenged the Pharisees, the way he called for social reform, all very impressive. And obviously, he did a lot. But, because of Mark, to American Christianity, it seems we have this mysterious lunatic in our minds, just yelling about repentance, baptizing, and eating locusts. And that's pretty much true. He's weird. However, John being identified with the wilderness, John being a wild man, would have actually been revered in Israel. As we know, time and time again, Israel was led into exile in the wilderness for repentance, to see the need for grace, and to receive that grace from the Lord. Which is why the coming of Elijah, who John seemingly was, was hoped for. Because that was the day that the Lord was coming to restore Israel forever. To restore His people. So not only was John preaching about repentance and the coming of the Lord, but he practically personified it. This dude was the real deal. He didn't just say you need to repent. His life showed that you need to repent. The Lord is coming. He's near. And so John's message and presence were beckoning Come out of your cozy lives and your routines. Maybe even your normal looking clothes and everyday meals. And get in the dirt and repent. You've been comfortable with where you are, where Israel is for far too long. And so Mark says, John preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, when we first read this, it may be confusing. It was to me. And it may even make us a little nervous. Is John saying that baptism was saving these Jews? No. The key word here is preaching or proclaiming. This is not really a command to follow, but it's something that has to happen to you. So this baptism that John is talking about is not just something you do, but it's something that has to happen to you on the inside. You can't do this yourself. Baptism, while actually happening physically in John's ministry, is used more to describe and symbolize the washing away of the inward stain of sin that happens with repentance and forgiveness. Not to mention, this was being preached to Jews, God's people. So even if you wanted to believe in baptism for salvation, which I don't recommend, this wouldn't be your verse. Because this was being proclaimed to the people who were already supposed to know the true God. Of course, we know that they didn't all prove to be true followers of God in the end. But this would have been a time to repent and be restored as a nation, as a whole people back to the Lord, as they had been led to do time and time again. And so verse 5 says, And all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. No matter the class, no matter the social standing, no matter the perceived holiness, all came to the waters and confessed their sins. What a beautiful sight this would have been. People coming, confessing, and repenting all the while while it's boldly proclaimed forgiveness and restoration is here. And we now know an even greater taste of this forgiveness and grace than even these Jews. And yet how often do we proclaim the goodness and possibility of grace for all who come to be washed? How often are we seeing people far from God, whether they are Christians or not, confessing and repenting openly? No shame, no insecurity, no covering up. Grace and forgiveness reign. How often do we see this in ourselves? Too often we live like the Jews in the desert, wanting to go back into slavery in Egypt, so their circumstances might be better. We often live like the dormant, comfortable Israel that arose 400 years after silence from God, and Israel we see in the Gospels, conquered by the Romans, content to live as they do, and only hoping for mere change in circumstances instead of a change in heart. If only we weren't under Rome, they were probably thinking. If only Israel was restored back to the power that it had. If only this were different, or that were different. If only my candidate would stay in office, or win office. If only I could make more money. If only I was able to just veg out and rest at night after the stress of the day. If only my husband or wife would make this one little change. If only these people liked me. If only I had a better job. If only I was better at fill in the blank, whatever you want to be better at. If only, if only, if only. We think that if we have our change in circumstances, if our lives are cozy and comfortable the way we want them to be, then we'll be okay. We get so passionate, it seems, about Almost everything else except the gospel going forth, the kingdom of heaven coming down, the church being the church in our community, and the horribleness and despicableness of our own sin. Everything else excites us about those except for those things. Everything else drives us mad except for those things. All the while we have this invitation: come and be washed. In the midst of our circumstances that seem to pile up, we have an invitation to come and be washed. Why? That seems an odd response. This is because our greatest problem is not our circumstances in life, as tough as they may be. I don't want to take that away from anybody. Suffering is hard and real. But our greatest problems are not our circumstances. Our greatest problem is our sin. The ways we don't let God be God, the ways we don't trust Him, don't find our joy in Him, don't have peace in Him, don't enjoy Him for who He really is. All the while, the only way to have true hope in every circumstance is by trusting that God really is who He is. By believing that He really is who He is. So if that is you and it's certainly often me, we need to be washed, clean, refreshed, revived of this passion, this joy that we can have in Christ, this sight for the gospel, this desperation for Jesus. That needs to be revived. But, like John's baptism, this is something that happens to us. For about three summers, I worked on staff at Seeger Springs, which is a uh, church camp down in Eris, Louisiana. So I was a camp counselor each summer, and <clears throat> what camp counselors do, if you didn't know, is that they are in charge of a whole group of kids. Depending on the camp at Seeger Springs, it'll be around 8 to 20 kids, and then there'll be about 10, 10 or so groups Right? Each camp, and that depending on the camp as well. And so each camp, each week, there were just a bunch of kids running around. And your job as camp counselor was to run around with them. And to play with them. And to swim with them. And to somehow try to get them to sit still while you do Bible study. And to, if it's an overnight camp, get them in the shower and get them in bed. And make sure they stay in bed, which is a hard thing. As some of you probably know. And so, all throughout the summer, all you're doing, really, besides preaching the gospel and praising the name of Jesus and things like that, all you're really doing is growing more and more tired, and fatigued, and worn out, and all you seem to be doing is sweating profusely, and there always seem to be some sort of mud or dirt caked on your body somewhere. It's weird. It always happens. Or even at Seager Springs, we played this game called Castle Siege, right? And it's where you get cardboard boxes, and there's two teams, and they each make a castle out of cardboard boxes. And your job, or the goal of the game, is to knock down the other team's boxes with paint-filled balloons, bombs of flour, which I'm not even going to tell you what we do with that, bombs of flour, and then paint-filled sponges. And so at the end of the night, after pelting kids in the face with balloons and things like that, I'll be exhausted and tired, and really messy. I'd have paint all over me, flour stuck to my shirt, not to mention the sweat and dirt that was already on me. And so as the summer goes on, you get more and more tired, but you also begin to long for one thing, and one thing only at the end of the day. And you just think, if, I'll, if all I can do is just get to that, then I'll be okay. And that thing is a shower. Man, there is nothing like a nice, hot shower after a long, hard day of camp. The sweat and the dirt running off of you, the water trickling down, easing your tired muscles and your bones. It was amazing. It was amazing. Now, there were certain times when I made the absolutely terrible mistake of not taking a shower before bed insane you should never do that and all my night was when that happened was it was a night of sliminess a night of dirtiness where sweat was just grabbing onto my sheets the smell filling my nostrils I couldn't sleep it was terrible all I really needed to get a good night's sleep was to go get a night get a nice wash go take a shower All I really needed to find real rest that night was a wash. And so often, we live our spiritual and emotional lives spent, exhausted by sin, dirty from the stress and mess of life, overwhelmed by it all. And all we really need is to be washed. But we think, actually, what I really need is to go out the next day and just try harder. Work harder not to get dirty. Work harder to make it through the day. Or we think, if only I can just keep my head above water enough, if I can just make ends meet, if I can get through, and then just numb myself out for the rest of the day after the stress, then I'll be fine. And so we go to bed, all slimy, Dirty, gross on the inside, when in reality, what we needed was to be washed by refreshing, life-giving waters that knows that sometimes you get dirty, knows that life is messy, but is always faithful to wash you. So we need to ask, what is this water? Is there this water? Let's keep going in verse 6. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. So John now talks about one who is to come. And he says that the one coming is much greater than even he is. So during all the excitement for who John is, during all the reverence that Israel had for him, he says absolutely something incredible. You like me? There's someone even better, mightier, stronger coming. In fact, I can't even take off his shoes for him like a servant. Now this analogy works well a little bit in our culture because we usually don't go around taking off other people's shoes. But in this hierarchical system of Israel, for someone like John, this was crazy to say. For someone as revered as him to disrespect himself, this much would have really driven this point home. The one to come is amazing. The one to come is so much more beautiful and spectacular and powerful than me. And he is coming to offer you something much more glorious, much more beautiful. And so we see in verse 8, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. While John's baptism was merely symbolic of realities to come, the one to come's baptism has real power, real authority, real ability to change, Real forgiveness from sin, real freedom from sin to all who come to be washed. Jews would have marveled at the fact that the one to come would have had the Spirit because in the Old Testament, the one who had the Spirit was God. God himself. So John is saying that the one to come will have real power, and it's not a trick. It's not just some spectacular man It's not just some uncommon prophet. It's not just some evil or satanic person. But it is God himself coming to be the true and better baptizer. The true and better John the Baptist. What John could do only symbolically. The one to come can do actually and bigger and better. This washing from the one to come, is perfect to restore and revive all things broken by sin. Our own slavery and our lusts, our broken relationships, our joylessness that we feel from day to day, our unrestfulness, our depression, our shame, our anger, our despair. And even, one day, things like the coronavirus will be no more because of what the one to come is doing because all these things we feel and see in the world because of sin all can be relieved and washed by the one to come because this baptism doesn't just give us hope for the future realities even though it does but also gives us hope for the present a sure and steady hope because this baptism gives us god himself and so john says don't look to me look to the one to come and then he ends it the perfect cliffhanger put yourself in this story you've been longing you've been waiting you've been hearing about a messiah your whole life this dude says the one to come is probably him and then he ends it who is this one to come Where is he? How can I get to him? We on the other side of this cliff know that this one to come is Jesus. This little, unassuming, brown-skinned man from Nazareth, who was actually the God-man. God became flesh. Not just a Messiah, but God as perfect Messiah. That longing, that expectancy, that hope we saw just at the start of this chapter is about to be seen and revealed. It's coming. It's here. God has been faithful to His promises to the extent that He knew the only way to truly deliver on His promise and redeem His people was to come down Himself. God, man faithful to death on a cross, and all-powerful even to resurrect from the grave. And so He will continue to be faithful and supreme for His people forever until one day, every day with Jesus, will somehow be more restored, somehow be more renewed, somehow be more revived, more washed than the next. Every day is going to be better than the next because he will have made all things new again and so the question is do you know this Jesus do you know this one to come have you entered this story do you see Christian or not do you see your sin as your greatest problem and Jesus as the only solution He's the only one faithful enough for you. He's the only one powerful enough for you. Have you been washed? And subsequently, have you tasted the sweet freedom and rest and revival that comes to running to Jesus' waters daily? Every day, a flowing stream that never runs dry. Come. Jesus is faithful to stay with you and powerful to overcome no matter what you bring. So come.